everyone, it's Floss popping into your feed with some little extra bits that wouldn't fit into our routine show in November. In this little bonus section, we're going to talk about platypus, some of the venomous snakes that we have in the highlands, and the beautiful Jezebel butterflies we have up here. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. So, Lou, you talked about seeing Rakali when you're uh, out and about near a river, and Rakali are one of the more common sightings that you will get near a river, and they can be mistaken at times for platypus. We are lucky enough to have platypus in the highlands uh, in a few spots, including the Berrima River area that we talked about before. And, uh, and in Paddy's River, I know. I've, yeah. seen, I've seen them in Paddy's River. Fant, isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. So when you're out near a river at sunrise or sunset, keep your eyes peeled. You maybe see a rakali, but you may also see a platypus. I am one of a very small group of people in the whole world who has actually cuddled a platypus. That's true. You sent me a photograph. Yes, it yeah. was it was a great experience. I wouldn't recommend so it because platypus have a very nasty spur <laughs> on their uh, back leg, and if they uh, envenomate you with that spur, then it causes severe pain, which is apparently not able to be managed by most of the pain killing drugs that we have, and will go on for months and months and months. Is it just the male? Yes. Yes, yes, it is, and apparently the they think it's uh, to do with protecting his own little area. He he will fighting fight off, off other, other males, males yep. probably. Yes, but the one that I got to cuddle was a um, anaesthetized. <laughs> it was an anaesthetized male. I was lucky enough to spend some time with a group from the Australian Platypus Conservancy who were doing some research, and they trapped a platypus brought him out of the water they popped him into what looked like a bit of a humidity crib and uh, anaesthetized him in there and then uh, once he was well asleep they popped him out onto a table put a microchip in him took some specimens from him and then while we waited for him to wake up we all got to hold cuddle him. a platypus cuddle a platypus uh, so platypus we don't really know how vulnerable platypus are because again it's a another creature that we haven't really got good data about the Australian Platypus Conservancy are doing a brilliant job of collecting data these days but there hasn't been a lot of historic data for platypus so if anyone sees platypus around particularly if you've got a photograph the Australian Platypus Conservancy really would appreciate uh, hearing about that. Platypus are really interesting in that, again, his, yeah, back in the day when um, naturalists were first shown uh, preserved platypus, they thought that tricks were being played on them and that various different bits of other creatures had been sewn together and they actually took to the hides with uh, scissors trying to look for stitches to explain all of the bits that had been they put together. They thought the duck's bill had been sewn onto the body, didn't they? That's right, and I think they thought that the tail also um, came well, from a different came creature Came off a beaver or something. <laughs> 
one of the things that the researchers taught me was that you can tell how well nourished a platypus is by bending its tail. If it doesn't bend very well, it's full of fat. Right. And it's much healthier. But again, don't try doing that if the platypus is alive. No, don't bend a platypus's tail. <laughs> You'd be very lucky to see one, never mind bend its tail. But still, I have seen them. And one of the th- ways you can tell is sometimes just looking on a flat piece of water, you'll see this V-shape moving, moving through it. Yes. And that's usually a platypus, whereas a rakali hangs around more perhaps on the side I don't think you get the v-shape of the water as, as yes I think that is the difference I can't be sure but I I have been on um, surveys where we've been looking for platypus and we've seen rakali and quite often they move very quickly and it's really hard to know so mm. you've really got to have a um, photograph to be sure an interesting thing that I learned about platypus is that when they go underwater they actually can't see uh, they close their eyes and their ears and their nostrils and they just fossick about with their uh, beak so they can sense electromagnetic messages from their prey little creatures Mm. under their little water dwelling creatures and when the creature's muscles move, they put out electric messages, mm. which are picked up by the platypus's beak. So they can hunt quite easily in really muddy water. Yeah. And they really like areas where branches have fallen into the river mm. and there's a lot of complexity of hiding places underneath the water mm. where they can find crayfish and mayfly larvae and dragonfly larvae and those sorts of things, tadpoles and what have you. Yep. And they usually live alone. The male and the female will meet up at mating time and mate, but then she will go off and build her little nest in a hollow in the riverbank and bring up the... A long burrow. Doesn't she have a long burrow in the side of the riverbank? Yes. That leads to a... I always think it's kind of cosy. The nest is sort of way beyond. You know more than I do about this. Yeah. Well... Um, that, I think it's a long, long burrow. Right. Yeah. I and know then the nesting area is sort of tucked away as a inside, sort of, yeah, right. excavated sort of hollow in the sand. So bank. she does all the work of caring. Well, that's unusual now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that Rakali and platypus will actually often share the same burrow, not at the same time. The platypus puss will move in and make use of the burrow after the Rakali's had its um, litter and moved out. Is that right? So I I've didn't read. know that. Well, yes, I suppose it makes sense. I mean, don't want to let a good burrow go to waste. No. <laughs> and people have said that Rakali will eat platypus babies, but there hasn't been any uh, evidence to support that. Not saying it doesn't happen, but no one's actually found any evidence of that. So uh, another thing that's going to be happening more and more as the weather gets warmer is that snakes are going to be coming out. Now, this is an intrepid podcast. We're not scared to go into the whole snake subject. I think sometimes people are 
you know, they're keen to talk about the cute and cuddlies and stuff. But the reality is that we have venomous snakes in the highlands. And we kind of wanted to reassure people a little bit. Uh, We don't want people to be put off from going out into the bush because, you know, really snakes are not out there lying in wait for you to walk past so that they can pounce on you. They really want to be left alone. And we thought we might tell this story of the day that I saved Lou's life. Yeah, we never hear the end of this story. <laughs> she it doesn't is true, though. She doesn't hear the end of it. You know, I can say, hey, Lou, remember the day I saved your life? Well, I'd really like a cup of coffee. <laughs> hey, Lou, yes, remember st- the day I saved your life? <laughs> I need you to do a podcast with me. (laughs) So I'm wondering if both our versions of this story are the same. So I'm going to not listen while Lou tells her version and then I'll tell mine and we'll see you when we listen to the recording what we get. Go for it, Lou. I think we'll both agree that we were at Thermill Lakes, but I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure we were at Thermill Lakes one morning and I was blabbing away as we were walking on and Floss was just behind me and she started to scream. I turned round, um, stopped, and she was stomping up and down, up and down with her feet. And she was screaming. I went, what? She said, look in front of you. And I was just about to tread on a copperhead on the path. And so she saved my life and I've paid the price ever since. Right, I really couldn't hear anything that Lou was saying, so I'm going to tell you exactly what happened on the day that I saved Lou's life. We were out for a walk somewhere, and I think it was kind of out the back of a Mittagong somewhere. There were a group of about four of us, and we were walking abreast down a fire trail, and Lou, who likes to have everyone's attention, ran ahead of us and turned around and she was walking backwards to tell us a story. And as I watched, I could see that she was just about to step backwards onto a Highlands Copperhead. And I just screamed and said, Lou, just stop, stop. And I just couldn't help myself. I was um, banging on the ground with my feet. And Lou, who never does what she was told, did not stop, but came running up towards us, which fortunately was an okay thing to do. She turned around and we just got to watch the snake taking its time. Uh, quietly crawling back into slithering the bush. Away. And then I took a photograph. Said, yes, of the oh, end. Oh, lovely, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got quite a good photograph, so, yeah, I was pretty pleased. But I was. it was nice to be alive. Yeah. It was nice to be alive. <laughs> and it's nice to have you still here to do a podcast with me. So, look, we go out into the bush quite a lot. We have lots of friends who are birders. There are venomous snakes out there, but... I've never heard of a birder or anyone um, being bitten in the highlands. And remember, birders are always looking up, not down. That's why they keep falling over all the time on the fire trail. That's right. But they, you're more likely to see a snake uh, in a sunny area where it might be sunbaking. Uh, and if we actually go off trails and we're wandering into the bush itself on a project or something like that, we always make sure we have boots and gaiters. And, and we stomp. We stomp and 
no matter where because we go. Because they pick up the vibrations, don't they? So That's I always right. stomp if I have to go into long yeah. grass. But yeah. basically, you don't want to have to go into long grass too no, often no. And on a sunny day. we always carry snake bandages. We do. And we recommend that everybody else does the same. But don't let the idea that there are snakes out there put you off. Uh, and talking of snakes, let's talk a little bit about snakes in the garden as well. I and Lou both are working toward having a wildlife attracting garden and we'll talk about that a little bit in time. Uh, And people sometimes worry that building a garden like that attracts snakes. And in my garden, I'm near-ish to an ephemeral waterway and snakes do come and go, but none of them have moved in. And I have to tell you that my neighbours who have just lawn and not much else also get snakes because it's a nice open area for the snakes to sunbake. To bask, yes. Yeah. So don't be put off building a you know wildlife attracting garden because really in this area you've just got to be aware of snakes wherever you're whatever type of garden you have. Yeah, I always think about it on a hot day. Uh, mm. in my garden and I always wear socks and shoes and long trousers mm. just to be, you know, just be cautious. Aware. Yeah. And if you're walking with your dog in the bush, particularly at this time of year, do not let them off <laughs> off a lead. I've seen people at Penrose Swamp letting their dogs run through the swamp in the middle of summer and I just think it's the riskiest thing to do as well as, as I've mentioned before, the fact that it just... It really gives a fright to the ground-dwelling birds who don't need any more stress in their lives. And the snakes. And the snakes, Got to remember that snakes are more scared of us than we are of them. That's right. Yeah. Um, What else has been happening? Oh, butterflies. Yes, please. Oh, my my second favourite, my first favourite I told you last time was the Maclay's. Butterfly, the swallowtail, beautiful. This one is also very, very beautiful. It's called the Jezebel. Oh, yes, I know the Jezebel. Yeah. Beautiful, yes. And sometimes I've thought it was a cabbage white because when it's flying, it looks mostly white. Mm. Mm. It's actually got black tips. But if you, strangely enough, when when it closes its wings, that's when you see its real beautiful colours. Mm. It's black, white, yellow and red. Red, that's right. Beautiful. It's stunning. Yeah. It's a stunning butterfly. It's around now in the highlands, usually flying very high. And it's flying around gardens, but it won't have come from from the garden originally because the food plant for the butterfly, this butterfly is mistletoe. Oh wow! That's a mistletoe usually grows on big, yes. big trees. Yeah, not commonly found in not commonly gardens. found. Um, certainly not in my little garden. Wow! Um, and the mistletoes are strangely enough, they're all the Jezebels lay their eggs on mistletoes, except for a couple of other plants, and they too, like mistletoes, are parasitic. Oh, like the cherry um, Ballarat, that yeah. one. The one that you tell me is the native parasitic 
cherry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, a very pretty plant. But yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so that's the Jezebel and a very lovely looking butterfly. So you can tell I'm a bit into butterflies every every yes. episode. I got to tell you, another <laughs> butterfly. I think we might even be talking about butterflies again next month because they're going to be coming out more and more. They are as the weather gets warmer and it's sunnier. Last year, I really got into photographing butterflies, and I learned about a behaviour called hilltopping, where males, not all butterflies do this, but many butterfly species and some other insect species will go to the highest spot that they can and the males will all flock there together and they actually have little fights over the very best posse in the hilltop area and they all collect up there and wait for days and days and uh, do what they can to defend their little pos waiting for females who will come up to the hilltopping area check out the males decide which one's genes she wants to promulgate and the female mates with the male in the hilltop area who's got the very best spot. And then she will fly off sometimes quite a long way to find an appropriate food plant to put her eggs on so that when her little babies come out, they are on the right food plant. So Hilltopping areas are really precious and if there's very much disturbance to them, the males won't go up there and hilltop anymore. So sometimes just putting towers up there or uh, flattening a hilltop or something like that will stop the hilltopping behaviour and the males won't come anymore and the species will actually become locally extinct. So I'm really interested in hilltop areas in the highlands. I really would like to hear about those. So they're basically butterfly party sort of um, places. Yes, that's right. Where, where you go for a it's party. A, that's right. That's exactly right. And then the female disappears. I, I guess the males hang around in the hope that yet another female might come by. And those food plants are, are very interesting because females very often will only lay their eggs on particular plants. Like yes. the Jezebel will only plant, uh, only lay its eggs on, on. certain parasitic plants, mm. particularly mistletoes. So you can grow certain plants in your garden to attract butterflies. But of course, what you're attracting also, remember, because of the lifestyle of a butterfly, is caterpillars. Yes. You can't have all of it. <laughs> they have a double life. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but it's worth it if you plant plant densely in your garden. You'll, you know, some of your plants will survive the caterpillar stage. Yes, and those who've got weedy gardens uh, feel feel good because very often they don't they love really them. judge yeah. <laughs> judge weeds as weeds. They go, "This is a great place to lay my eggs." That's right. Yeah. So I understand that. A, all along the top of Razorback are, are lots of hilltopping areas. And last year I, I found on Gibbagunya there was quite a lot of hilltopping behaviour. That's not a guarantee that it'll happen again this year, but walking through Gibbagunya late spring and into summer, there were just butterflies everywhere. And the higher you got, the more, there, the more of them there were. Where's Razorback? Oh, out <laughs> further north from where we're recording right now in Bowral. Yeah. Okay. Let's check that one. 
So talking about caterpillars on plants, one other thing that's been happening that was sensory overload for me was recently I was visited at home by a group of about a dozen, if not a dozen more, yellow-tailed black cockatoos. They were after the the butterfly caterpillars. Were they? Yeah, they assisted me with the pruning in my backyard. How thoughtful. Yes. Uh, They tore into quite a few of the trees, tore out the um, kind of the core, into the core of some of my banksias where there were caterpillars. Yeah, they've come and eaten my banksias on occasions, but they usually they only take the old banksias with the nuts in them, right? Yes. The seeds in the nuts. Yes. They don't take the flowers. No, no, they didn't. Very they, considerate. They chopped off some banksia flowers for me. Oh, did they? Oh, well, that's not so That's right. Good. But I think they haven't come back, so I think they believe that they've got all the caterpillars that I had on offer and they've moved to someone else's backyard. But what an amazing experience. They're magnificent birds, and to have a dozen of them in your garden chatting to each other and raiding, they're welcome to assist with the pruning and do you know how to tell a male from a female oh i've i think it's about the color around their eye yes Yes. and the males have pink around that's right pink or red around the eye makes them a male yeah they were also accompanied by one juvenile who was squawking and squawking and squawking and squawking ah well that explains the caterpillars of course because they need protein yes yes that would be right of protein yes yes So that was delightful. Mm, That sounds lovely. Everybody, we are everywhere now. You can listen to us on Highland FM at 8 o'clock on Monday nights or at any time on their website under podcasts. We're also on YouTube. We've got our own channel there now. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio and anywhere else that you listen to your podcasts. You would really help us to get to a wider audience uh, by liking and subscribing and reviewing and all those things. Please feel free to get in touch. We now have a Facebook page called Going Wild in the Highlands. Our email address is flossandlou at gmail.com. Thank you once again to Highland FM for sponsoring us. This month, the Going Wild in the Highlands team included Adam Stokeld, Warren Barnett, Harrison East, Louise Docker, and this month's special thanks to Gay White. And a special thank you to Kyle Ash and Challenge Southern Highlands for advice with social media. We really appreciate it. Bye. Bye now.